Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 190, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Some prominent government officials from both sides of the aisle call for more civics education and which COVID time practices will carry over to our new normal. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, how much can we learn through playing? An executive with the Lego Foundation will make the case. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. How about you? I cannot complain. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're continuing to... Wouldn't help us. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't help. And uh, I don't know. I think things have kind of been on the up and up, at least in our neck of the woods. I know uh, some schools around the country are having to shut down again. That seems to be in Michigan. I saw some stories uh, where that was taking place, yeah. but a lot of schools are coming back online. So it just kind of depends on where you are. They are. They are. And I've checked it out a little bit on my Twitter timeline. And there are quite a few uh, school administrators who were really excited and very proud to welcome their students back. Right. So kudos to them. No doubt. Um, some interesting stories I saw this week because I saw from two different angles, uh, kind of the same story. And I don't know if this was coordinated or what, but I saw this call for more civics ed- education come from high-ranking people in different parts of government. And stick with me for a second. Mm. Here's what I'm talking about. So I I see over in Education Week, you've got this story that says, Supreme Court justices call for more civics education amid risk from domestic enemies. And this is a call coming from two Supreme Court judges, or justices, I should say. And um, they're from, I know they're supposed to be non-biased justices, but as we all know, right. they're, they're, it's not necessarily the case. And one of these folks uh, was nominated by President Trump, that was Justice uh, Gorsuch, and the other by uh, President Obama, which was uh, Sonia Sotomayor. And they are coming together and saying, you know, they're, they're renewing these calls for improving civics education. And then earlier in the week, I actually saw on NPR a similar story uh, coming out of the Senate, uh, Chris Coons, uh, the senator, and uh, the other one was uh, John Cornyn. They're both calling for the same thing. They they are saying that we need to put more focus on civics, and um, they're actually proposing a democracy act that I think would put a billion dollars towards civics and history education. Wow. What are your thoughts? Well, first, I have to say that the Supreme Court justices, while they're supposed to be unbiased, they are extremely influential. Mm-hmm. And when you come across the aisle that way on a topic, it will turn heads and make us dig deeper. Um, I think we need to think about what civics education looked like in the past and um, what type of funding or support that they provided and why they are really pushing for it, thinking that our children would not be prepared for domestic threats. That's deep. The the whole... you. I guess when you think civics education, one thing that probably comes to most students' mind, especially if you grew up in the 80s, it was the old I'm just a bill uh, (laughs) cartoon. Do you remember this? Yes. And I don't know who was behind that was like government funded or what, but 
I don't know that we still see a lot of that stuff like this, like, here's how things work at the Capitol and so forth. That seems to be like one of the few very successful examples of, I don't know what you call like education just kind of being piped into our living Mm -hmm. rooms or whether it be, you know, you could pipe it into YouTube or whatever. I don't know if that still happens. And I think that's kind of what they're calling for, you know, things like that. That's a great point because you're right. I don't guess I've seen it either. Um, But I sit back and I think about how much we've changed globally and what our students need to be prepared for in order to be able to compete. And not just, I guess, in the dark, uh, thinking about domestic threats, but um, thinking about our economy and how strong we want it to be in the future and being able to build. I guess that's where we've shifted our focus on, you know, new types of skills that students need. And I don't want to necessarily say that we're not really giving them quality uh, civic instruction, but I will agree that we probably have backed away from a lot of the activities that we used to do. Um, When you mention just understanding how things work within the government, I mean, you have those conversations in class, but are students still taking field trips to to their state capitals? Are they Mm -hmm. taking major trips to D.C.? Um, So that that is something to think about. Well, and so from the NPR interview, Senator Coons um, tells Steve Inskeep, he says, there was a recent editorial in the Wall Street Journal by six former secretaries of education from both parties that stated that we now invest a thousand times more in STEM education in our schools than we do in civics and history education. I believe that. Yeah, civics education has fallen off in part because of the disagreement over what should be taught, but I don't think we can avoid the necessity, the urgency of helping a younger generation learn the basics of how our government works and why compromise is essential. And so I guess maybe that's the question. Do you, do you think the the right push, which I think most people would agree, the STEM push has been fantastic over the past decade, um, has civics kind of been lost in the shadow? I'd say fantastic and definitely necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we'd only think civics was lost if we were big civic buffs. Um, I don't think that that's anything that we just constantly talked about, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that I, I do think it's important to maybe shift a focus back um, to civics. I don't know about greatly investing in it as that's not you know, what the future looks like it needs in regard to what are our Fortune 500 companies working on? How are we competing against other countries? When we talk about domestic threats. Now, that is tied to STEM and technology um, and, you know, deep parts of science and mathematics. So I just think that there is a, a double argument there, but you have to just be very, very careful. And I don't really believe anybody's going to start shifting um big budget away from science and technology back into civics. I I, I really don't see it happening. And I probably would end up on a soapbox (laughs) if we really broke down um, the conversation about what should and should not be taught in schools, um, not just in regard to to civics, but deeply in, um, you know, our nation's history and what is is true and what is factual versus what is um, pretty much created. Uh, to push out to children. So there's a couple of different soapboxes I could get on here. Well, I agree with you on, on all of what you're saying there. But let me ask you this. like, w- Refresh my memory. Where did you grow up um, in high school? San Diego, California. Okay, so you were in San Diego. I was in Northern Virginia. Um, and I'll answer this question, but I'm going to let you take it first. Um, do you think that your civics education in junior high and high school was stronger than the civics education that your children have received? Well, I think that's a fair 
uh, way to look at it. But let me tell you why that question is unfair. Being from San Diego, my father was in the military. Mm -hmm. So I grew up around, you know, major military bases in Southern California. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to be exposed to it. We lived in military housing. We were all learning the same thing. Um, So if I compared my upbringing to my child's, I'd say probably not Um, as much conversation. Um, I think that the times have just changed. We just have. Then you and I are in the same boat. We might be a bad sample if we were taking a survey because I (laughs) I grew up right outside of D.C. We had the unique privilege of, you know, our field trip Mm -hmm. was to the the Supreme Court and the United States Capitol. It was, you know, there was a strong, you know, Virginia education Mm -hmm. in junior high, which was all the founding fathers. So it's it was a little it was a little different because where I was geographically. So it's right. It's not really comparing apples and apples. But I would say I feel like my understanding of civics is stronger than my kids. Now, I would say every other category, my kids blow me away. But um, so as I kind of hear this discussion that we hear on NPR and and in Ed Week, I I can't help but kind of go, well, maybe we are. Maybe we are leaving civics behind, but then maybe it's just geographic. But don't you think back when we were growing up that even politics were different, even what we considered, you know, our domestic threats were way different. Um, I just think we're living in different times and perhaps that is why they are saying we need to go back to it um, because some of the disturbances and the things that we're dealing with right now, we've never dealt with before. The silver lining here, in my opinion, is the fact that we are seeing people across the aisle bringing this to our attention. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, when we were growing up, it's like you had, you had Ted Kennedy and, and Ronald Reagan, and you had these people, these, these lions, you know, that, uh, they'd still found ways to compromise and it doesn't feel right. like that happens very much anymore right now. Um, and, and maybe so- compared to other countries, they have stayed, um, pretty consistent in what they believe they should teach, um, all children. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I like the idea again, though, that it is, uh, you know, being raised at least something to discuss and it's coming from both sides of the aisle. So hopefully that'll, uh, bear some fruit. Uh, another story I saw kind of pop up, uh, and I, we've done this before and I want to do it again cause it's kind of, it's a little fresh, but, uh, it came out of the Marsh memo and it said, uh, which COVID time practices will we carry over to the new normal? Um, and hmm. I just kind of want your take and saying, like, eh, I think that'll, that'll survive or that won't. But, um, one that I see is online guest speakers. Um, oh, we, that's definitely going to stay. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> We're talking about uh, summer surge and what's happening in different countries. And are we going to have, you know, I don't see us having another shutdown, but just the numbers, you know, um, are predicted to really, really rise as people begin to take vacations. And so I will say when we go back to school in August, there may be some um, things we have to repeat. And I would say guest speakers is one of them keeping us, you know, people trying to control the visitors on campus. Yeah. And I mean, just the idea of one, everybody knows how to communicate through Zoom now, at least it seems that way, yeah. you know, which is great. That's a plus. Um, and then like when I was doing the weather back at the TV station, we we would get a lot of school requests. And a lot of times if I wasn't able to, to make it to a school, it was because I just the time it would take, like we'd have somebody an hour and right. a half away. Um, but now knowing that all we have to do is, you know, zoom into the classroom or zoom into an auditorium where I can answer questions and talk to students and stuff, that that's an option. It's so, not, it's so not, let the, me it's ask not equal, you about but. that. How, what type of impact, and this is the middle school principal in me asking you this, mm-hmm. what type of impact do you think a guest speaker could really make on, let's just say middle school age, 500 kids? 
500 okay so if it's one speaker speaking to 500 kids i don't think yeah. it would be great if you would have to be a small classroom i think to kind of i agree yeah i think you i just wanted to point that out yeah. for for listeners uh in case they were you know thinking about it that the setting and the number of participants really that, that you ha- you would have to be a pretty magnanimous person to be able to entertain 500 people through Zoom, and I'm thinking like a, a very successful stand-up comedian or something would only be like people who would like keep kids' attention. Uh, I don't think the local weather guy would be able to pull that off at that scale, um, for sure. Uh, another thing on the list was um, online tutoring. I, I don't know. Are you guys doing much tutoring online? Is that happening for y'all? Um, not necessarily tutoring, but we, you know, um, anytime teachers see students are getting behind or they're not mastering skills, they are providing them support through our learning management system. So you could say yes, but we don't have a tutorial program that we're offering that way. Uh, what about the idea of flexibility with due dates and grading? Like, do you think that there's more leniency built in and understanding after the pandemic? I don't think there's more leniency built in, but I think that it is now a part of the discussion. Um, It was creeping up for quite a while about, you know, how we're grading students and different ways to evaluate and assess their learning. And I just think that that is on the forefront now. Um, I do think that maybe there's more empathy um, in supporting students because we were in a pandemic. Right. And the last one is virtual faculty workshops. Um, have oh, you, definitely. Yeah, I mean, are you are you guys like tapping PD virtually now? Is that uh, yeah? We've been actually conducting our PLCs virtually for months, especially after um, we had that little outbreak back in December. And so we every now and then we'll have a small group, maybe a department meeting that's face to face, quick a quick call meeting mm-hmm. um, to discuss something. But generally, our weekly um, professional development sessions and our meetings, if we have a staff meeting, it's all been um, either Google Meets or Zoom. Anything come to mind that I'm not mentioning that you're like, ah, that's that's probably here to stay. And I'm kind of putting um, you on the just, spot there. But well, you know, thinking about um, the arrival to schools, what will stay? Will we continue to take temps and usher children quickly to pick up go breakfasts and, you know, get to the classroom? That's something that uh, is, is completely changed how we receive children in the morning and even lunches. We're not eating lunches in the cafeteria. They're, right. They're lining up quick to get it to go. Well, and I have one I'm curious about because I have a kindergarten age student and I remember the days of my other kindergarten age students where I would get opportunities to go in the classroom and I don't know, volunteer, help, be parts of things. Do you do you think educators like the fact that moms aren't hovering in their classroom at times or and you think that's going to change or are you anxious to let parents get back in and help? That's an interesting discussion because I recently um, was made aware that there are some some parents who are not happy that they have not been allowed in schools this year. And I think that they're forgetting at times um, wanting to be close to their little ones, but we're in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I certainly hope that we can get back to that. I mean, I personally um, miss inviting parents to the building for different for different reasons and conducting my parent nights uh, online has not been as engaging or fun for me. I'm still providing the information. They are still getting an opportunity to, to, to learn from us and to provide input when we have surveys or whatnot. But I just think face-to-face interactions build better and stronger relationships. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, even back to, you know, online guest speakers and any type of, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody coming into PD at the end of the day, it's always going to be better in person. But at least we do have that option. Well, uh, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am. 
Learning through play is a great way for children and adults to develop new skills, but it's also a great way to alleviate stress and trauma and even tap into some different parts of the mind. Our guest in today's Broad Idea segment is an expert on learning through play. Dr. Bo Stjern Thompson is the Vice President and Chair of Learning Through Play in the Lego Foundation. For those that don't know, the Lego Foundation has researchers and labs throughout the world that study learning through play, and they have a new study out on children technology and play. Dr. Thompson, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to have you. And I, before we dive too deep into new studies and, and learning through play, let's help our listeners understand a little bit about um, who the Lego Foundation is. How do they relate to what we all know as the Lego company? Sure. So the Lego Foundation has actually been around for more than 30 years, but it's uh, not until recently, the past decade, that we have been able to elevate our purpose and impact, which is to imagine a future where children can be empowered to become creative and engage lifelong learners, because that's what's most needed uh, to be well prepared to thrive in today's society. And that can be achieved by learning through playful experiences. And the way we can achieve that is because we own 25% of the Lego company. Hmm. So the family have decided that they want to give the 25% of the assets of the company for social impact. So basically to benefit children all around the world through programs, through evidence, and through advocacy. And it's across all types of play, all types of materials, and in more than 30 countries around the world. You said a key word there that I think probably a lot of our listeners don't realize. You said the family. I, Lego, I think a lot of times, we this fantastic large company, we see them in all of our stores and video games and everywhere, uh, movies. And I think we look at them as this gigantic you know, entity, corporation, publicly traded. This is a family-run company. Am, am I wrong about that? Absolutely. No, that's right. It's a family-owned, family-run company, uh, and um, they are giving 25% of the assets to the foundation, which has, has an, an independent charter and independent board also where the family is part of. Uh, but they have this huge ambition and passion for making a difference for children, uh, also in places where Lego is not usually uh, established and recognized. Uh, so we have brought programs um, towards teachers, towards parents, towards educational systems uh, all, ac all across the world. And can you give us a little quick, maybe interesting nugget on like, how did Lego come about? Like these blocks, that they've been around for what, 50, 60 years? Yeah, the, the blocks more than 60 years. But basically, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, a company that uh, has evolved over uh, four now, almost five generations. And it started with Ole Kirk basically as a carpenter shop back in the 1930s. Um, the Lego is really uh, like God in Danish, was playing well. So we had this uh, shop with carpentry. Uh, and during the, the Great Depression in the 1930s in Europe also, he didn't really know what to do because there wasn't much to do. So he figured out he could make toys out of the scrap wood he had on the floor. So he basically started to put together with his, his children uh, small wooden toys. That has evolved now from Ole Kirk from wooden toys to Gottfried developing the liquid system of the plastic bricks mm -hmm. into Kelkia could develop something like more play themes and minifigures and Lego mind stumps and technology. And now the fourth generation uh, with Thomas Kirk Christensen is now chairing the board. It's really leading towards, you know, having greater societal impact on children across the world. Well, that's fantastic. And, and let's talk about the foundation a little bit. I mentioned at the top that, you know, you guys have researchers and labs that, that study the value of play. I mean, what does that look like? How, how many labs and researchers are we talking about? 
So we have uh, partnerships, uh, around 15 plus partnerships worldwide. We have research centers supporting them in US, uh, in Europe, in Asia and Africa. I think we've always benefited from the tremendous knowledge that exists uh, among the legal group uh, of different entities, because when you develop you know, hands-on learning materials and creative approaches. You know a lot about children and materials and so forth. But what we really decided to do is we need to elevate the evidence behind the benefits and understanding of creativity, play, and learning. So basically, a decade ago, when I started to kind of mobilize that evidence, we figured out that when you walk around the corridors of universities and educational institutions, there's no door to play. You just can't find that as a research, as a field of study. So it exists in psychology, in education, technology, leadership, some places. But we decided to bring together that in a community. So now we support independent researchers across yeah, 15 um, institutions, and they also help us support our initiatives and interve interventions. Uh, I think it's also important to recognize that actually there's a lot of practical good examples and knowledge out there, which we are also supporting and encouraging people to share. But the main challenge we have is really this language around play. So everyone say, you know, play is obviously good. Like it's about you know, intrinsic motivation. You really want to do it. You are immersed, you're engaged, you are testing and trying things out. But many say it has no really purpose. It's not really serious for any outcomes. So what we had to do was to make it a scientific journey to really understand what is the science behind play and how does it benefit children's development and learning. And that needed to bring together a broader range of research partners. Well, and I think in a lot of ways, you're, you're speaking to an audience of educators, uh, a lot of K through 12 teachers right now, and and they have makerspaces. They, I think, at least believe that that you can learn through play. And a lot of those makerspaces that they create have Legos actually in them so so children can play and learn. Um, what is the science? Like, I know you can't dive into, you know, in-depth research studies, but can you give me some some takeaways that that the science has actually shown to kind of say, yes, educators, you're doing the right thing. They are learning while they're playing. Absolutely. I think uh, when we meet uh, educators around the world, they're not very, uh, you know, they have, don't, don't, don't see that, that they are playing and engagement that's different from from learning generally. But it starts basically with if a child or a student has a passion for understanding, a passion for learning things, even when things are difficult, they want to keep on doing it. So everyone wants to nurture that motivation to dive into topics, that curiosity, their thirst for understanding and testing and trying out things. I think the challenge have been in the past that there has been a little bit in opposition to the understanding of knowledge acquisition, standardized assessments and grades and so forth. But what seems to be emerging now is we know that we need a different set of skills. We know the world is a little more uncertain. We are changing jobs more frequently. So what we really need is a creativity to have alternative ideas. We need critical thinking to be able to understand information and validity of information. We need to collaborate with new people. When we look at these type of skills, you know, play is ideally suited to come up with ideas, to critically reflect in processes, to collaborate with others, and to regulate one's emotions. So when we look at the characteristics of when a child is completely immersed, testing and trying out things, there are a few things that are coming up here. First, you understand things much deeper when you test and try it out and when you really enjoy learning things. You basically know they remember things for longer. There's no summer loss. But also you understand concepts better, like concepts of science, concepts of language and principles, because you have tested and tried out. 
And also, you are able to practically apply that knowledge, as we said, as I mentioned, to new ideas, to practically, practically problem solve, to, uh, to test and try it out. So the curriculum is not knowledge in isolation, but actually using that knowledge to develop a new project to engage with real-life problems. So where we're moving towards now, what we're saying is play has often been seen as different to education. But when you think about learning through play, it already exists, as you say, and, and illustrated, maker labs, you know, project-based learning, active forms of learning, experiential learning, where you go explore the community, engage in real-life practical problems. You know, it does exist, and it has a much more prominent role now in education systems worldwide. Specifically, I guess, when you're in, say, a makerspace, whether you're working with Legos or building anything, Tinker Toys, whatever, I mean, what skills... Is, is a child or even an adult learning while they're trying to build something that maybe we don't realize they're picking up on? That's a very good question because that's some of the things we need to bring more attention to. Basically observe and understand, reflect on how we're learning while we build and make things. So the first obvious thing is attention. Like our sustained attention and problem solving is much more apparent when you build and make things. And it's literally because when you're physically engaged, manipulating things, you have much better ability to keep focus. You adjust your eyes and your hands together. Um, but it's also uh, about the, the particular manipulation of objects. It's also about mathematical thinking. It's not only systematic thinking like with Lego bricks, but it's quantifying, it's sorting, it's cause and effect and reasoning. It's all about this process of manipulating objects and materials. So attention and problem solving, you know, mathematical thinking. But also in many of these processes, when you find yourself building things or doing small experiments or even, you know, having little uh, baking experiment at home, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there are frustrations. The ability to emotionally regulate your frustrations and challenges is even more something you practice when you're engaged in making and creating things. And obviously, you know, it is about often coming out with alternative solutions and alternative ideas so that's much easier when you have practical things in your hands. You're testing and trying out different ideas. And, you know, when we think about Lego as a system, but also many other materials, it is a social system. You can engage with others. You can think about symbols and language and so forth. So the, the, the crucial thing is here, it's not only one skill. It's actually a breadth of different skills that you're using. And while you do that, you understand mathematics, language, you understand concepts, you understand knowledge at the same time as you develop skills. A lot of this is about curiosity and exploration. And as I was researching before we did this interview, I was listening to some presentations that you had given. And in it, you talked about a study that I wasn't familiar with, but maybe you can kind of elaborate on a little bit. You, you said that there's been a study that you can predict an 11 and 14-year-old's academic and intellectual ability by observing their curiosity and exploration at four months and five years old. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Absolutely. It's a fantastic study by uh, Mark Bornstein. And it, it is, as you say, it basically provides assessments of uh, children at five months, at four years, 10 years, and 14 years. So literally follow children for 14 years. And at some point, it's surprising that if you look at how children physically move around, how they balance, how their motor abilities are at the five months and four years, you can predict 10, their academic intellectual abilities at 10 and 14 years. But when you reflect more on it, it's actually not surprising because children who move around and balance grasp materials around them, they get more information. They get more exposure to things in the environment. 
And what children need, particularly in the early years, is experiences. You know, they have this enormous uh, millions of, uh, of neurons that are connected while their brain grows and matures in the first uh, years of life. And they need to have hands-on physical experiences to make sense and connect these neurons. So when children touch objects, they get information through touch and sensing. Uh, they have much richer attention focus when they have things in their hands. So this ability to move around is basically enriching how your brain wires to the world around you. And it means that they get more information, more experiences that they use to think about mathematics and literacy and attention and flexibility when they get to age of 10 or 14 years. It's basically how they wire their way of thinking for uh, later achievements. Well, and I guess if I'm understanding the takeaway there properly, I guess I'm hearing you say, you know, as a child, we learn through exploring and playing. Why not continue that through later parts of life? Is, is that correct? Absolutely. You should continue that later for, for, for two reasons, I think. Uh, the first is, uh, is basically the skills we're looking at right now, which is our emerging, is to be much more adaptable and much more flexible. So when we think about the uncertainty we're in, sometimes uh, creativity we need to apply in our everyday life. You know, you need to be able to uh, think creatively about solutions. And it means you have to move around. You have to find new ways of developing skills. And that means you have to explore, be curious uh, as you grow older. The second thing is uh, neuroscience really begins to emphasize as plasticity in your brain. So, you know, your brain still continues to be plastic and can kind of change its, uh, its structure as we grow older. It's particularly important in adolescence also, where we have much more social exposure and we need to, you know, we're much engaged in risk taking and so forth. You know, practical testing and trying out also ground us. But this plasticity of the brain means that we can keep on learning, like we can keep being curious and we need to do that to be much more creative and flexible throughout our lives. All right, so let's dive into a topic that is very current, I think, for a lot of parents out there right now, and that's digital play. I mean, it's one thing to have the blocks and be building something. It's another to have the iPad in front of the child. I think any parent of a child aged 5 through 18 right now knows that it might even be a concern. You know, maybe they're getting too much digital play time. Um, I think you guys recently did a study on digital play. I mean, are we hurting kids, helping kids? Are they learning? What's the takeaway? It's really fascinating, and it's something we discuss everywhere in our research right now, and we're also looking at digital play and well-being. But the key takeaway is everything is a balance. You know, the exposure to technologies is something we need uh, and children need to be able to familiar with new types of technologies, new types of innovation, new types of tools. But too little is not good. You know, they need to be familiar with it and test and try it out, but too much is also not good. So being able to think about technologies as tools and, and, and engage with them and test and try out uh, your exposure to them is important. But what we want to get away from is the traditional sense of just uh, screen and no screen. Uh, there is, a, there is a, a balance of different experiences children need. And at this point, particularly during COVID-19, obviously there's too much sedentary work. People have been literally, you know, too isolated and not too much physical activity. And we need to ensure that children are physically moving around, socially engaged and so forth. But when we come to talk about technology, we need to move to a discussion about how are we using technologies, not only what devices we are. 
And we started a huge study with a survey of more than 3,500 parents across uh, Europe and Africa, across socioeconomic differences. We had GoPro cameras, cameras on children. They follow around, they explore the environment, they interview the teachers and parents. And basically what we see is children are using technologies in fascinating ways, which are completely integrated with how they live. They're not sitting passive in front of screens. They're moving around with their phones. They're documenting. They're always talking and chatting with others. They're taking things apart and manipulating it. So children's knowledge and the skills that are important, including emotional well-being and the family relationships, are actually also supported through technologies. But there are particular ways we need to be informed of how that's done. And this is what comes out of this child tech and play study, that we can now give much better advice to parents, to teachers, to policy and media. First and foremost, technologies are social. Like, don't think about yourself sitting in isolation with a screen. It's really about how you collaborate, how you chat, how you talk to others. But it's also moving to a point where you're not just sitting, uh, being exposed to information and looking at videos but you encourage to personalize, test ideas, and try out new things. So the ability for technology to move from a passive state to an active state where you can set your own goals and personalize is really critical for, for technology nowadays. And then what we've seen is that the engagement of children and adults have been critical. So for a few reasons, obviously the discussions one have with children when adults sit next to it, what are you doing? How does that work? It's not only important for adults to learn about how to use technology, but children actually understand technologies much better and when they test and try out it. So the knowledge and use of technologies, they can uh, engage and learn about when they play, when they experiment. So there's a kind of a diet and a balance to use of technologies, but it's really how we use it that is important. Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, everything in moderation, right? And I think every parent would agree with you there. I, I'm personally in kind of a different camp because I, I grew up as a gamer, right? Like I, I, I played mm. those games when I was little and now I have kids. Um, mm. I, I really got to hand it to you guys with what you've done with some of your games, like say just even like a Lego game on Xbox or PlayStation or whatever. It's you're playing a game, but the whole time you're you're solving puzzles. Basically, it's like if mm. I have to pull this lever, then I have to do this, and then I have to go here. And then if you have a second player, they, that second player has to work with the other player to solve these puzzles. How much of that game design came from y'all's research, and how much of it was just maybe a, a game designer being creative? It, it's a combination. I think when we have uh, our Lego idea and the Lego values behind it that is inherently about nurturing and supporting children to be creative and engaged in how they use materials. And that also means that our like the Lego designers and our partners with Lego and without Lego also keep in mind that it's not only about children doing things and taking initiative. It's really how they can personalize experiences. They can create new things and they should feel they can do things they couldn't do before. But then also, on the other hand, we also have research that looks into the platforms like Minecraft, like Scratch, and also some of the intersections between, you know, Lego Mindstorms, the physical robotic and, and coding, in which way children can use technologies to combine, recombine and experiment. And the key, the key benefit is what you're trying to, to also illustrate is there's a breadth of different skills you're using when you are engaged creatively in making your own games and coming up with different ideas. And that's really where the main benefit is. 
for educators, which we also come up with recommendations now, is it's also much easier then to adapt these platforms to curriculum. You can literally, you know, invite children to build, uh, you know, the geography you are studying in, in school or come up with a simulation of mathematical concepts. So these platforms are very flexible to integrate with curricula and to provide alternative forms of assessment. Speaking of flexible, did I hear you say once that a standard Lego brick that has, I guess you you would say, the, the six little circles on the top can be, and you, if, I guess if you have a, a six of them, you can make almost like a billion combinations. Is that right? With just yeah, six that's blocks? amazing, right? It's, it's, it's basically yeah, six uh, bricks, two by four studs. You can combine them in 913 million different combinations with the same color. Wow. So, you know, there's so many opportunities to use just six bricks. Yeah, that's 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 a pretty neat fact there. I, I find it hard to believe that it's really that high, but I'm sure somebody way smarter than me has, has calculated that and figured that out. Um, well, again, Dr. Thompson, this is so fascinating. I really appreciate uh, all the work that you're doing with Lego uh, and kudos to Lego as a company. I have to say like this is a, a toy company, essentially, that has remained relevant through generation after generation. So just as from a business model standpoint, I think you guys deserve to be applauded for, for what you all pulled off over many decades so uh are you ready for our pop quiz yep all right first question if students could go to school for only one subject which subject should it be community so students would go to study the community because the richness of experiences for school and all across all kind of curricula they actually get from the real world what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching a joy of learning. The most important thing for children to learn is to enjoy the learning process, be excited about challenges and the confidence in learning. And that's also what lasts the longest into well-being and success in life. What does every child deserve? Attention and care. I think we often think about just caring, but sometimes we just keep attention, observe what they do and ask questions. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think the challenge is that educators are in quite a position between a pull from governments, international standards, and parent expectations. It's a challenge, but also an opportunity, because we really need to see schools and teachers as role models for how to navigate you know, expectations towards society and skills and knowledge and helping mobilize parents to see schools as a place where children can thrive, be safe and be curious. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time for professional development and engaging with their peers. You've seen that over and over again, that there's quite a push in terms of time for their administration. It takes time to prepare. When we give them opportunities to connect with each other and be inspired and time for professional development to see other people's work, they really thrive. Which teacher changed your life? My teacher was my was a, the librarian. Uh, so my librarian was also my math teacher. But basically, exposure to the library of all the different facets and diversity of stories was my, my, my best teaching. Do you mind sharing the name? 
Uh, uh, Esther. Esther. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question: pen or pencil? A pen. All right, Dr. Thompson. Again, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about uh, learning with play. Uh, uh, thank you so much for all you do, and uh, thanks for coming on Class Dismissed. Very exciting. Thank you for your fantastic work with the podcast. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.